This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Summer 2018, Episode 10. Today we are looking at Hanibado, particularly the two matches in Episodes 7 and 8. Each of these features a showdown between girls with a shared past, and we get to see how this history appears to be affecting them in the present. All four girls have complexities added to their characterizations with this increased understanding. So, we are going to examine each of these girls in turn, and the influence each feels from the events that led them here. Have you ever heard the expression, past is prologue? Or more accurately, what's past is prologue? Like a lot of turns of phrase in English, this comes from our friend William Shakespeare, specifically from The Tempest. Also, like a lot of turns of phrase, the modern way we use the expression differs from the original intent. Today, the statement that past is prologue implies that the present owes its existence to the past, that any current situation is best understood as the natural conclusion of the chain of events that led to it. This usage puts emphasis on the past, on the progression of history. The original intent, however, was to imply that the past was of less importance than the future. The phrase might be more clear if stated, past is merely prologue. In other words, the past is just like the prologue to a story, a short bit of setup that creates a jumping off point for the narrative. The prologue doesn't matter as much as the story for which it sets the stage. This use puts emphasis on the present and future, on whatever happens now and from now on. Episodes 7 and 8 of Hanebado center around two matches in the prelims, and in both matches a shared history between opponents figures prominently into the characterization of the participants. Past as prologue is a phrase that can apply to all four of them during these two episodes, and yet which reading of the phrase matches their actions differs from girl to girl. There's an example of the past having an inescapable grasp, an example of the past being banished to history, and an example of switching from one reading to the other during the match itself. So, we are going to go through each of these four girls and their characterizations in these two episodes, especially focusing on how their past currently affects them. We'll start with Kaoruko. Before now, we only knew her from Ayano's memories and the time she randomly showed up to challenge Ayano after she joined the badminton club. We get a first look into her thoughts and memories, painting a more complete picture of her shared past with Ayano, as well as what kind of person she is today. What becomes immediately apparent is that Kaoruko is a very analytical person. I spoke in our first Hanebado video about the mental burden that a sport like badminton imposes on its players. Physical ability and conditioning matter a great deal, for sure but mental toughness and strategy play a much bigger role than they would in most team sports. 
Kaoruko then is presented to us as someone who excels at the mental aspect of the game. The seventh episode begins with the rest of her teammates watching Ayano play one of their own and either cheering or making generalizations about Ayano's game. Yet Karuko is completely locked in and correctly surmises that Ayano is intentionally extending the match. She has intense focus when it comes to badminton. This gets reinforced when she chats up the coach. She's blushing and fidgeting and all a Twitter when it comes to the cool older man. She's a little out of her comfort zone. Yet when he suggests that their conversation could have interfered with her match, she loses the blush and more or less scoffs at the idea to herself. Karuko might be awkward at romance and terrible at being a teammate, but she's supremely confident in her ability to take control of the mental part of the game. The early part of her match with Ayano furthers this characterization. Her mind races and attempts to predict and strategize every part of their rally, only failing due to miscalculating Ayano's speed. After she gets in an early hole, she reassesses what Ayano is doing and shifts her own strategy. She actually wins more points than Ayano in the first game after she stops taking Ayano's bait. Her mental effort is obvious even to spectators, and though her own teammates initially delighted in seeing her struggle, as the match continues and Karuko shows such resilience, they each come around to cheering her on and hoping she pulls it out. Even down to the last point, she still believes she can win and is analyzing what she needs to do to reverse the flow of the match. Yes, she has a confrontational and braggadocious personality, causing her to antagonize opponents and teammates alike. But it seems she really has put in the work. Her swagger isn't some false front. Yet, there is a crack in this confidence, a lingering insecurity from her past, and that insecurity is Ayano. Before, we had only seen the match between them when Karuko forced Ayano to take ill. This was a watershed moment in Ayano's life due to the timing of her mother leaving, and it made Karuko seem kind of like a crazy person. Yet now with more context, we get to see that Ayano was the first peer Karuko ever had that could best her. While Ayano was happy to have someone she could go all out with and hoped it meant they could be friends, Karuko was not prepared for this blow to her ego. Beating Ayano seems to have become a preoccupation for her, hence the biological warfare, hence showing up unannounced at their practice, and hence all the hard work. As she says, beating Ayano has been her primary goal. Karuko knows her mental toughness is her advantage over Ayano, or it usually is anyway, and so she presses this advantage as much as she can, even if it means playing mind games or trying to get a rise out of her. This is not exactly uncommon in sports, especially with solo matchups. Losing is hard for someone who has so much of their identity tied up in their success, especially when they talked a big game beforehand. Yet losing itself is not nearly so bad as losing to Ayano, especially on this large of a stage. While Karuko's pride demands she put on a brave face, as soon as it is just her and her friend, all that mental resilience crumbles. Badminton is all she has. She doesn't even have the social skills to understand why her friend would be just as upset. For Karuko, the past with Ayano still casts a long shadow over her present, and losing to her probably does nothing to fix this. The tragic irony in this is that Ayano wanted to be her friend and earnest competitor. If Karuko's pride had allowed this, they might both be in a better situation. Of course, Karuko is not the only one who was haunted by a loss to Ayano. The series began with Nagisa's six-month fit of madness after being completely blanked by her. We've discussed already how Nagisa was able to regain her confidence and her sense of self, so we are not going to completely rehash. 
Instead, we get an updated look at her past with another player, the Nozomi girl who torpedoed Riko in the first round. While Riko knew she wasn't Nozomi's equal, Nagisa and Nozomi both know that Nagisa is likely the superior player. However, Nozomi was chosen over Nagisa for a scholarship, and it is implied this was due to concern over Nagisa's knee being unable to hold up long term. That the very coach who made this judgment call is now specifically trying to game plan around causing Nagisa to blow out said knee is quite the bitter pill. Nagisa's warm-up and focus before the match indicate to the others that she is treating this confrontation differently. And so it seems the past issues between her and Nozomi, and her and the opposing coach, are reaching into the present. However, Nagisa is not insecure or intimidated or even bitter about the situation. She offers Nozomi a hand before their match. She knows they are trying to wear out her knee, but doesn't voice the complaint until someone else does. She practically encourages Nozomi after her change in strategy rattles her. We are set up from Riko's details about their history together to assume that Nagisa might be harboring a grudge against Nozomi, that the match would be personal for her. But it seems Nagisa made her peace with that situation long ago, which ends up being more than we can say for Nozomi. More on that in just a moment. Last thing I want to say about Nagisa is that although she's in a much better place than when the series started, the past has not completely stopped affecting her. She's the healthiest of these four girls in that respect, but there is an exchange in the middle of their match which shows lingering effects of her loss to Ayano. When the subject of her knee is brought up, it's pointed out that she shouldn't be trying to return the cut smashes, a low percentage situation that especially strains her knees. The opposing coach even muses about this tendency of Nagisa's to throw herself at every shuttle over the net. Nagisa's does not argue the point exactly, but her mind flashes back to the final point of her match against Ayano. She has tried to compensate for the sting of that loss by working harder than anyone. In fact, her coach even points out that there is nothing he can say to her because he can't make her perform any better than she makes herself. But this leads to her putting undue stress on her body. Nagisa is not haunted by the past exactly, but she has also not moved on enough to focus on the future instead. She should be playing in a manner that doesn't exacerbate her injury. Instead, she lives only in the present. We get hints that this might become a conflict in the future, as the coach might need to overrule her if she doesn't show a little more self-preservation. In this way, at least, the past still has some hooks in her. Opposite Nagisa in the Episode 8 match is Nozomi. Isn't it interesting how different a character looks just by giving them lips? I feel like there was an intentional effort to make Nozomi seem especially feminine to contrast against the tomboyish Nagisa. The more prominent lips, the skirt, the softer and higher pitched voice, even the more elaborate updo rather than a pragmatic ponytail. I had wondered about her design initially, but I believe now she was always meant to be an aesthetic opposite to Nagisa. Once we get a glimpse into her past, the divergence seems especially intentional. We mentioned that Riko's history lesson might have made us expect that Nagisa would harbor resentment about being passed over for the scholarship, and yet she does not seem to be bothered. Nozomi, on the other hand, is downright haunted by it, as she knew very well that Nagisa was the superior player. She becomes driven to prove that she really was the right choice, even if it meant surrendering her path to her overbearing coach. Part of me wonders if the coach intentionally chose someone who he thought would be more compliant. I mean, I have a hard time believing Nagisa would put up with his micromanaging. This especially seems like the case when we see that he would compare Nozomi against Nagisa's ability unfavorably, as if to keep her insecure in what she could accomplish on her own. 
Thus, Nozomi has long nursed an inferiority complex towards Nagisa, and is willing to work her fingers bloody and endure public humiliation for a chance to prove that she is not Nagisa's inferior. When Nagisa starts to disrupt Nozomi's control and gain some footing in the match, it rattles her. The fear that all this effort and unpleasantness might still not be enough to defeat Nagisa begins to be overwhelming. Perhaps even more than Karuko, Nozomi has let the events which led here dominate her present. Unlike Kaoruko, Nozomi's opponent is sympathetic to her plight, and so intervenes. Nagisa's understanding actually makes sense. Wasn't she herself haunted by her past until just recently? What rescued Nagisa was having her effort and enthusiasm recognized, both by her coach and her former teammates. Thus, in the moment when Nozomi is most desperate, Nagisa reaches out and recognizes her effort. She validates her success to this point and her ability in this match, telling her that she is bringing everything she has just to stay on the court with her. Nozomi pulls out of her mental tailspin and decides to ignore her coach and try to win her own way. She even articulates to him as he berates her after the first game that she hasn't been playing the kind of badminton she wants to play, so she is going to work to find it now. She will go on to win the next game, a long one that reaches 21 all, but she ultimately loses the match. However, she shakes Nagisa's hand afterwards despite ignoring her initially, and even admits to her that she had fun. Quite different than the dread she had been feeling in the first game when she started to fear she would lose. It would seem she has shaken loose from the inferiority complex she has suffered under for some time, but she didn't do so by actually beating Nagisa. She and Karuko share a lot of overlap in being haunted by a middle school opponent, and both actually lose their revenge matches. Yet, Nozomi is going to walk away from this a different, healthier person. Karuko is still mired in the past, and Nagisa appears to be thinking only about the present. Nozomi, though, now has her own eye on the future. This just leaves Ayano, who turns out to be a cheeky little git. She is actually characterized throughout both of these episodes, and yet oddly, she is the only one whose thoughts we never hear. I think this is intentional to put some space between her and the audience, to make her seem especially unknowable and strange during these episodes. Ever since Connie's conversation with her at the end of episode 5, she has begun slipping back into the blank-eyed and emotionless Ayano who wreaked havoc at the previous year's inter-high. Karuko is probably right that psychology is normally Ayano's weak point, that she has low mental fortitude. However, the current Ayano seems to have shut her vulnerable humanity away where it can't be harmed. While this makes her distant and unfeeling, and honestly kind of unsympathetic, it also shores up the one weakness in her badminton game with obvious results. So, how did we get to here? Elena has been a good friend to her, and I'm sure will be important in the future, but it would seem that Elena's insistence on getting Ayano back into badminton has brought up a lot of unresolved issues. Ayano has a lot of trauma surrounding her mother's abandonment. This is realistic. This is not the kind of thing someone copes with over a weekend or one therapeutic conversation. But it appears that Ayano never fully dealt with the psychological fallout. Ayano assumes that her mother left because she lost to Karuko. Now, we've talked about this, that while I'm sure the situation is more complicated than that, the only part that matters is that this is what Ayano believes happened. At first, she tried to deal with this loss by winning. She pushes aside her emotional self and becomes the unstoppable automaton we saw in Nagisa's flashbacks. This is a heartbreaking example of a child believing they need to earn their parents' love and approval. 
that losing it is somehow their own fault. A child doesn't have the context to understand that this kind of abandonment indicates a problem with the parent rather than themselves. Ayano doesn't know this and internalizes the failure as her own. When winning and winning and winning doesn't bring her mother back, she runs away from everything associated with the trauma, badminton included. It never really gets addressed in a healthy way. So she was reluctant to return to the sports she once loved, and she nearly leaves it again at several points. But as she starts to find some enjoyment in being part of a team, she is able to begin building a new association with badminton that doesn't depend on her mother. This is the real way that Karuko screwed things up for her. If Ayano had developed more peers and friends in badminton before her mother left, she might have had a more therapeutic outlet and support structure in the aftermath. Better late than never, though, and through the badminton club, Ayano has started to separate the idea of badminton from the idea of her mother, as Elena had suggested to her before. But when Connie reveals who she is and unearths Ayano's lingering feelings of inadequacy, all those unresolved issues come roaring back. Now, with any luck, that means she will get a second chance to address them. But for the moment, we have an Ayano who is pulling back from every potential source of pain. She can't afford to be sympathetic to her opponents or her teammates. Instead, she adopts the flat-eyed mask she wears during matches that turns her into something of a badminton sociopath. I don't think Ayano has suddenly become a jerk to everyone. I think it is simply that, in the context of competitive badminton, she is wearing this caustic Stepford Smiler persona to defend herself. The show actually gives us a few clues that this is not how Ayano actually wants to be. Right before her match with Karuko, we can see her looking down and troubled, and her eyes are normal. Yet when she lifts her head to look at Karuko, her eyes are flat, and she smiles her creepy killer smile. She will maintain this mask throughout the match. However, after it is over and she is leaving the court, she seems less certain, maybe even regretful as she looks back at her opponent. The show actually emphasizes this troubled look by having it also be the very first image of the episode, played in slow motion, though we don't have the context for it initially. Even when she is only talking about badminton, as she does with Elena after her own matches, and as she does about Nagisa's match, this defensive distancing mask goes back up. Now, Elena has begun the process of tearing this down by grilling Ayano about her behavior after the match where her opponent retired. Though Ayano has a lot of dismissive and reductive answers, when Elena asks her why she is trying to get good, she is unable to respond. Whether Ayano has not yet asked this of herself, or whether she is unable to admit why, I don't yet know. But we can tell that it has gotten past her defenses, as she is still mumbling to herself about it moments later when she enters the stands to watch Nagisa and Nozomi play. It may be that this is Ayano's attempt to sort out her past trauma, but I think everyone involved can tell that it is not going well. She's practically bifurcated her personality into the earnest but uncertain Ayano and the badminton butcher. Probably neither of these is the real, healthy Ayano, but both of them were born from her mother's departure. For Ayano, past is not so much prologue as it is the entire story. She has no future as it is. Heck, she doesn't even have a present. So where do we expect to go from here? If these two matches were their own sort of prologue, what kind of story have they set up? Nagisa and Ayano seem to be on a collision course for the finals. We know her mother is prowling around her somewhere, and Connie is on the way from her own prelims to come see her, assuming she can find her way. 
Nagisa is in a healthier place, as we said, at least psychologically, but the specter of her trick knee may yet have something to say. They have already introduced the conflict that will arise between the coach's desire to protect her and his desire to let her play in the finals. Nagisa would probably insist on playing anyway, but if it's against Ayano in a potential revenge match, then I would expect that her past will creep back into the picture to inform her decision. No gentle suggestion is going to sway her course. Thus, Ayano is the question mark here. How is she going to handle running into her mother again, if that happens? How about running into Connie again? Will either of these meetings happen before the next match? Or will she notice their presence during the actual match? Will her mask be enough to protect her from these encounters? Are we about to have a showdown between one girl with physical scars and another with emotional scars, with the outcome hinging on who can overcome her own weakness? I will say that a certain direction is suggested by our opening credits. The INO dressed in their new uniforms, but with the pink bow, is shown casting a variety of shadows. These are shadows of her past, or the shadows hanging over her. I can't discern all of them for sure because of the credits, but young her, her mother, Karuko, and probably Connie all seem to be there. Even without all else we've talked about, we can guess that these people and their associated memories are affecting Ayano. Then it seems like Ayano and Nagisa are on opposite sides of the net, with Nagisa giving her a fierce look. They are opponents, and because of the updated uniforms and the addition of a knee brace to Nagisa, we can guess that this foreshadows an upcoming meeting during these preliminaries. However, Ayano's opponent is more than just Nagisa in this particular situation. As she reaches up toward the net, the images change and scramble, as if to say that all of these are Ayano's potential opponents. They are specters of the past and of the present. What's more, the scrambling implies confusion on Ayano's part. She's not sure who is friend and who is foe, or where her focus should lie. There is a shocked Nagisa, a younger Nagisa, Kani, Karuko, Nozomi, Riko, and even Kani's team captain, Shiwahime. Then we see her real opponents, her distraught younger self, her younger flat-eyed self, her current uncertain self, and her current flat-eyed self. Finally, it ends on something we have yet to see, a happy version of her current self, pink bow and all. And thus, reaching the net, she becomes that self, and her opponent is no longer a determined and aggressive Nagisa, but one who smiles at her in turn. Now, we are eight episodes in to a 13-episode season, so I can't imagine that such a showdown will be the last thing we see unless they do not actually play each other during these prelims. Then, I suppose we could have their destined meeting delayed until the actual inter-high. Either way, we know that both of them have issues to resolve. While Nagisa has largely been able to make her past merely prologue, a successful revenge against Ayano is something she probably has not let go of. Ayano, of course, is practically a haunted house with all the ghosts of the past swirling in her. But I said last time that a possible victory condition for Ayano would be to suffer a great loss and yet be okay with it. She has a long way to go before she could be in such a state. She will need to face the root of her issues with her mother before she could have such a healthy perspective. But when the time comes, I feel like both of these girls could get what they really need from playing each other. Then the past can be truly behind them. So one last unrelated note, in two weeks, I'll be taking my one vacation I take each year, and there will be no videos that week. 
This is where the next Hanebado video would normally fall. Probably this means we will just resume the week after, but we'll see if we skip it or delay it when we get there. We'll still have another Rayview Starlight and Planet With episode early next week. So, until then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.